We were above that in Covent Garden. What's that? I sold flowers. I didn't sell myself. Now that you've made a lady of me, I'm not fit to sell anything else. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Tatum, have you been watching anything recently since the last time we recorded? I actually have not uh, because I have been traveling. <laughs> um, yeah. I am actually visiting my parents right now in a different state. And I'm also sitting in the room with my less than a year old nephew. So oh. if anyone <laughs> hears noises of a child making sounds or banging blocks together, that is my nephew. Um, but I didn't want to kick him out of the room because he's just too cute. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I've been traveling the whole week and just kind of spending time with family. So I have not been able to watch anything um, other than me and my dad watched a little CNN documentary yesterday about uh, the television shows of the 1990s, which was super fun. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, I'm not uh, a huge endorser of the of the channel of CNN. Uh, I think I'm not really an, I don't not really an endorser of any news channel period as a statement, but every once in a while, these channels have good documentaries. And this was a really fun one just about the television shows that came out in the nineties. And um, so, yeah, I guess that's what I've been watching, but that's not really anything. So yeah. How about you, Geneva? That's kind of interesting. I saw Um, that you saw one of my, well, not one of my, my favorite movie of the year. I did. I did. I finally saw Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Yeah, you did. It was great. Uh, the animation was fantastic. The story and the acting are all fantastic. Um, yeah, I can't wait for the next one to come out. I will say I did start to feel the length at a mm. certain point. Um, at what so that point would, would my, you say? The point when, um, slight spoilers, I will try not to oh, be too specific. yeah, but sorry. When he, <laughs> gets to the dimension with all the other spider people and mm. starts talking to the character who will be revealed as a villain. I was like, all right, I I, I can see where this is going. <laughs> can we okay. kind of maybe move it along a little bit here? Uh, but then eventually it did, you know, wrap up in what is a um, uh, cliffhanger. And I thought the cliffhanger was hand- handled very well. So yeah, yeah. It's a great, great movie. I'm really excited to to see part two whenever. I'm assuming that's supposed to be coming out next year. Well, there's not going to be a, like a three year gap or whatever it was from the last one, is there? Well, they did say initially that the next one was going to be coming out in 2024, but then I thought I heard talk in the last few weeks or so that 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 it might be pushed a little bit, but I don't know for sure. That was just some article that I think maybe I read, but I could be wrong. Um, okay. Well, I'm we'll just see. reading so many articles right now about the like what's being postponed because of the writer's strike that I could be confusing that with something else. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I find it interesting that you say that was the point when you started to feel the length, because for me, that was when I was kind of 
doubling down on my investment. I was like, <laughs> being oh elevated my into the next level. Yes. I was like, let's just keep going. This is, this is such a mm-hmm. great story. And we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And I, yeah, I loved it. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think the thing is for me is that I, for me, Spider-Man is always at its peak when it's the most human and relatable. Hmm. So I, every moment when it's Miles Morales and, and, um, Gwen Stacy interacting with their families and having to deal with the pressures of um, juggling their spider person life against um, their real life. That's always when it's operating at the the peak for me. And so when it gets more into the multiverse aspects, I'm like, well, I've seen a lot of things recently that have to do with the multiverse. So it's not bad. It's, you know, probably one of the things that uses the multiverse the best of all the things that have come out recently. Um, but it just, it, it's, that's not where it's operating at its peak for me. Okay, gotcha. I liked <clears throat> I liked the aspect of once we got into the multiverse, I felt like it 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 kept it at a personal place, you know, by hearing about Miguel's story and his relationship to it and how that's kind of our touch point into understanding the stakes of all of this. I thought that it and I'm not saying that you disagree with this, but for me, I was just like, wow, this is this concept that's very overwrought and overdone at, at this point. <laughs> I think it's being grounded in something that's really ultimately like human and personable um, <clears throat> and real. And yeah, anyway, yeah, I, I, I would love to do a review on the first and second one on this podcast at some point. But um, yeah. yeah, I'd be super down for that. Maybe when the third one comes out, we could do mm. an episode with all three. I'm here for it. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, so in terms of what else I've seen, so I also saw Past Lives, the oh, Korean yes. film. Yes, which finally came out in my area. Um, great, great film. I've been thinking about it for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, afterward, I would highly recommend it to everyone. Um, Do you see, uh, I think I... When, I think it was when we were talking about Laura a few weeks back, how we kind of had um, the discussion how in that movie it starts and ends in the same place. And I loosely yes. referenced how that happens in past lives and how past lives mm-hmm. does it so well. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, my god. That's gosh. one of the things I love the most about it. I had I'd actually heard from a second source about that as well, which made me even uh, even more excited to see it. So, yeah, I, I it really does it beautifully. Uh, the way it starts with the conversation and you're seeing it from one from an outside perspective and then you see the conversation again from the perspective of the people who are taking part in it and how many layers there are going on with it i would say if i had to criticize is too strong a word if there's one thing that the movie left me wanting a little more is i felt like i i would have liked a little bit more from the husband's perspective Mm. Um, because his sort of relationship to the the two main characters and his kind of love, but also this sort of crippling insecurity was very interesting to me. And I, I felt like I would have liked a little bit more time spent on his perspective on all of these events. Um, but, you know, it it wasn't his story. It's the story of the the two um the two childhood friends. So I understand why there wasn't as quite as much time spent on him. I I really loved how he was used sparingly. And and I'm not going to kind of go into all the details of that because, you know, I would love for people to watch this movie on their own and discover it for themselves. But particularly that scene that we were just talking about where we see it in the beginning and then we see it later in the film, how that scene is shot 
in terms of when we see him and when we don't. I just feel like the movie is so careful with how we see him and how often we see him and when we see him. I, I do see what you're saying. You know, I, I don't think the movie would, um, I, I don't think the movie would have, like, I, I don't think it would have taken away from the film if we'd seen more of him. I, I don't necessarily know if I can say it would have benefited from that, but I don't think it would have taken anything away. I think it could have been a nice addition, but I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was lacking that, but even so, like, it, yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great film. <laughs> it's a great film. Yeah. Yeah. And incredible that it's, I believe, a first time filmmaker. Am I wrong about that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I So happy Selena... for her, but also yeah. screw those people. <laughs> Tatum, is, <laughs> Tatum is writhing in jealousy and oh, inside. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. As we all are. But yeah, great, great je- first effort on her part. Very excited to see where her career goes from here. Uh, Celine Song, I think her name is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Extremely talented. Um, and then the third thing that I watched this week is, so a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that I had tried to watch, well, not tried to, I did watch The Thomas Crown Affair and was very underwhelmed by it, which is disappointing. So I went and saw uh, another Steve McQueen movie that I'd never seen before, which was Bullet. And that movie is really good. I had a great time with it. It's um, uh, sort of an action thriller. It's most famous for this really um long very exciting car chase which happens toward the end which is excellent um but there's some really some other chases that happen throughout the movie that are very tense and very well staged i thought it was a very well directed movie um i it wasn't completely what i expected i i kind of thought that he would play some sort of um i don't know like a a heist character like his character in Thomas Crown Affair but he's not he's actually a he's a cop he's very sort of stoic and all about the job but you can tell he really cares about the people around him and he's on the case chasing down the um murderer of a witness and yeah it's it's a really good movie I I would recommend it it's very stylish it's very fun um it's pretty well paced um yeah bullet go watch it all right, let's move on to the uh, movie that we are discussing today. So today in the podcast, we are discussing the 1938 film Pygmalion, co-directed by Anthony Asquith and Leslie Howard, starring Howard as Professor Henry Higgins and Wendy Hiller as Eliza Doolittle. The story is best known today because of Lerner and Lowe's musical, My Fair Lady. Um, ever heard of it? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it actually began life as a 1913 stage play written by the legendary Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw. The title is taken from the ancient Greek myth of a sculptor named Pygmalion who carves an image of a woman so beautiful that he falls in love with it and asks the gods to make her real. Shaw used this myth as the starting point for a story that would satirize the British class system of his day. 25 years after the show premiered, producer Gabriel Pascal began adapting it into a film and enlisted Shaw to help write additional scenes and dialogue. Shaw envisioned Charles Lawton in the role of Henry Higgins, but Pascal cast Leslie Howard, who's a major star at the time and seen as a much more romantic figure than Lawton. Howard ended up co-directing the film alongside Anthony Asquith, who is an established British director. Wendy Hiller, a relative newcomer who had performed in Pygmalion on the stage, was cast as Eliza Doolittle and given introductory billing in the credits. Uh, fun fact, another notable name involved in the production is actually David Lean, um, 
British director who we discussed a couple episodes ago. He directed Brief Encounter. But he, uh, this is before he turned to directing full time, and he actually worked on this film as an editor. Uh, do Can you, I you... ask, what does yeah. uh, introductory billing mean? You said that Wendy Hiller was given introductory mm. billing? Yeah, so in the opening credits, it says, and introducing Wendy Hiller as Eliza Oh, Doolittle. gotcha. I thought. I thought maybe that meant that she was paid less because she was a new actress. Oh. And I was like, um, I, I mean, maybe she was. Hope she was paid for sufficiently for her role. I mean, I have no information on that. Given that it's, you know, Ugh. film industry of the 1930s, I would not be shocked if she was not. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, she's not an established star the way her co star is. So, but um, yeah, no, it just meant that she was put in the billings as introducing. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So in Pygmalion, to sum up the plot, uh, an upper class professor, Henry Higgins, makes a bet with his friend, Colonel Pickering, that he can mold a lower class flower girl, Eliza Doolittle, into a society lady by changing her accent and training her in etiquette. After a lot of hard work, the bet is won. Eliza is dressed in expensive clothes and taken to a ball where Higgins' self-important former pupil, Professor Carpazzi, mistakes her for a European princess traveling incognito. After the ball, however, Eliza begins to worry about where she fits into society post-transformation. Higgins, who takes pride in being rude to everyone and feels freedom to ignore class distinctions when it suits him, doesn't seem to understand why this question is so important to Eliza, and he refuses to give her the respect and consideration that she demands. Eventually, Eliza stands up to Higgins and uncovers his weak spot, the idea that, having been brought to life, quote-unquote, by gaining self-respect and realizing her power to survive as an independent woman, she can go off and live her life in a way that she, that he, might disapprove of. The ending of the movie version of Pygmalion is very significant. Now, there's one question that haunts every iteration of Eliza and Higgins' story. Is it a love story or is it not? In Shaw's original play, the script ended with Eliza bidding Higgins a permanent farewell and sweeping out of the room, with Higgins seemingly unable to process the fact that she's leaving him for good. However, from the very first production, the actors and audiences alike have been shipping the two characters. The first actor to play Higgins, Sir Herbert Tree, which is a great name, by the way, uh, is reported to have responded to audience feedback by starting to play the character as having romantic feelings for Eliza, eventually going so far as to throw flowers after her. This infuriated Shaw, who was adamant that any indication that Eliza and Higgins could get together was a betrayal of Eliza's growth throughout the play. Shaw even wrote a lengthy postscript that was published with later editions of the play, explaining that Eliza married Freddie and outlining exactly what happened to all of the characters. Uh, it didn't really help. When the 1938 film was being made, producer Pascal uh, compromised with an ending that made it into the movie. Eliza leaves, Higgins looks regretful, and begins to self-reflect. Eliza returns, and Higgins responds by asking for his slippers. This ends the story on a somewhat ambiguous note. Is it the start of a new beginning for them, or an indication that remaining together would only repeat the same patterns? Is romance even something the characters feel for each other, or is it something else entirely? All right. So I picked Pygmalion, um, and I guess I'll just start with kind of my history with this movie. I first watched this movie in college, and I <laughs> it kind of brought me on onto a, a mini deep dive into Leslie Howard's career. Mm. I've been familiar with him prior to this because 
um, of the Scarlet Pimpernel, which is uh, one of his most famous roles. I love every iteration of the Scarlet Pimpernel. I've read the book many times. Love the 1980s version, which is the best version in my estimation. But the 1930s version starring Leslie Howard is very good as well. Um, so that was kind of the image that I had in my mind when I watched this movie. And then I was like, oh, he's actually really good at comedy. And so I went and looked up a bunch of his other roles. Um, he played a lot of kind of, you know, swoony romantic leads and dreamy characters but he also did a lot of he did some comedies and I think he's very skilled at that um so I had a great time with that I love this movie um I not I think I actually saw this before I'd ever seen My Fair Lady and to be honest I'm not a big fan of My Fair Lady I think this movie is far superior um I think George Bernard Shaw's play is so brilliant that to add all of these um song and dance numbers, even though they are, you know, excellent, extremely catchy songs, really slows down the pacing and takes away from some of the the satire um, that is inherent in the material. I uh, really enjoy this movie. I think it is one that I, I'm still, every I've seen it many, many times, but every time I watch it, I'm still kind of teasing out my feelings about these questions that I just asked about whether this story should be read in any way romantic or whether it's something more, something deeper, something different. And I kind of come away with a different answer every time. Um, I do love the the performance of the two leads and the chemistry they have with each other. I think it works a lot better too to, you know, compare it again to My Fair Lady. I think it works a bit better in this movie than in My Fair Lady because the even though the aged gap between the actors is roughly similar. It's about 20 years or so. Visually, um, Howard and Hiller look a lot closer in age than Hepburn and Harrison did. And there's a feeling of more equality toward the end when she finally learns to stand up for themselves. Then I pick up, I, I feel like I see in My Fair Lady. And so... I think it just opens it up to a lot of different possibilities, whereas My Fair Lady, I think, is a little bit more reductive, I guess, in the way that I the, the relationship ultimately ends up working out. Um, yeah, I think there's a I think the direction is strong. Um, there's a lot of really great the I'm just slightly obsessed with the camera angle toward the end when <laughs> Eliza Doolittle has her line about how when I think of myself I crawling under your all feet. You, all you had to say was camera <laughs> angle and I knew exactly what you were talking it's about. so good. It's just, you know, you're on Higgins level looking up at her and she looks enormous and she's fantastic. Um, yeah, I love it so much. So yeah, that's that's a little bit about my history and feelings about this movie and we can get more into the themes and what it says about class what it says about um self-realization about uh independence and codependency and relationships and things like that but yeah tatum was this this was i believe your first time watching this movie um so what were your thoughts yeah, so this was my first time watching this movie. Um I had seen My Fair Lady before similar to Geneva not a huge fan. It felt very bloated to me. Um, especially after watching this movie, I'm like, wow, this movie did not need <laughs> a lot of the other excessive things that they added. Um, but anyway, this is not a podcast about My Fair Lady. This is about Pygmalion. Um, so yeah, I'd never seen this movie. I didn't really know much about it. I didn't really know the history of what 
the story was based off of. I didn't even know that My Fair Lady was based off of this um, kind of lore. So I found that to be interesting going in. But uh, this movie makes me really mad (laughs) Um, because I am 100% on the George Bernard Shaw train. I... I didn't know that that was the perspective that he had until you started reading that. And I was like, dang, stay true to what the creator's intention was, because that is just so much better, in my opinion. Um, This movie, this is why I say this movie makes me mad, because I was watching this movie and probably like 99.9% of the way through, I was like, this is one of my new favorite movies of all time. This is one of the best things I've ever seen. I love, you know, I love the story. I love the acting. I I love everything about this. This is the best. And then the end, I got a little bit wary. I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Like, she's going to stay with him. Oh, no. And then she left and she got in the car with Freddie. And I was like, yes, like, you go, girl. Get out of there. Like, this is amazing. And then... She can't. Well, so then obviously we have Henry Higgins kind of, you know, going on his journey and getting back to his I don't, his lab or whatever you call I don't even know. Um, his lair. Yeah, his lair. And he's sitting there and he's listening to this recording of her speaking, which reminded me of the conversation a little bit. Two very different movies, but it just made me think of that. Um, but and then he turns around in the chair when he sees her there. I thought that that was in his imagination he turned around and he was like oh I'm imagining that she's there but she's really not and so then he turns back to his recording and he was thinking oh well I guess these recordings are the only version of her that I'm going to have with me going forward because she's gone and I was like I am obsessed with this I love this story and then I went on the internet and I saw that everyone was (laughs) like and everyone was just saying and not even just people you know just talking about the movie but reviews and people like this just saying like oh yeah she returned and I was like wait what no this is not what I wanted why would anyone want this so so I I I I'm very mad at this movie because I love it I love it it's so incredible and it truly was the whole time I was watching it. I was like, this is one of my new favorite movies of all time. This is phenomenal. I love the story. It's making me laugh. Like I genuinely laughed out loud multiple times, not just like a little chuckle, but like a genuine laugh out loud. I loved this movie. And then the freaking, you know, I'm just like, I feel like I'm just going to stick with my own personal interpretation. Screw everybody else. George Bernard Shaw's right. Um, and if the, if that's the story that he wants to be told, then that's how I'm going to interpret this. And in that sense, I think this movie is perfect. And if we go the other route where she does return to Higgins, I'm like, well, what was the point of any of this? (laughs) Like, I, I, I'm not going to say it makes me hate the movie, but it makes me just makes me mad because yeah, what, what's, what was the point? Like there was no no growth in the characters I just I I don't I don't know how to talk about this so I'll just stop there but yeah I'm very conflicted about it I'm very conflicted that's amazing Uh, I'm first of all I am so glad that you enjoyed apart from the ending which we can talk about I'm so glad that you enjoyed the movie up to that I was very watching this movie I had this vision of us sitting here and talking and you just being like Henry Higgins sucks and I'll be like yeah he is he's the worst (laughs) 
He's and absolutely that's the, only the worst. Th- yeah, I'm so glad that you liked it and were able to engage with it apart from that. Um, I will say... Because, yeah, he does. <laughs> well, I will say I did have to... Th- there were several moments throughout the film where I was like, Tatum, you have to turn your 21st century feminist brain off because mm-hmm. that is the only way you're going to be able to really enjoy this film because there were certain moments where I was like... Uh, you know, the first moment with uh, with Eliza having, you know, her bath in the bathtub, I'm like, this feels like it's abusive to me. Like, she's literally screaming, please stop, don't do this to me. And it's a very long scene of her screaming. I'm like, this feels like abuse, but... I guess I'm just going to I'm just going to pretend that that's not what it is because I'm just going to pretend that it, that that's not what it is. And then there's a scene later in the movie where where Higgins he doesn't do it because she ducks, but he literally tries to hit Eliza. And she's like, "Oh, well, you can't hit me." And I'm like, "Yeah, but he definitely freaking tried and it was not a light like it was a big swing." <laughs> and I'm like, "Tatum, turn your brain off." turn your 21st century feminist brain off like you can't you know whatever so there were certain moments where I was like I have to just try and put myself in the shoes of being someone at this time um and not look at it through such a like modern lens because if I did this movie would have been a lot less enjoyable because Higgins is probably one of the most like if not the most just he just insults I would love to make a list of all of the insults that he poses towards Eliza, towards women, towards lower class people mm-hmm. throughout this entire movie, because they're not just insults. They are vicious. They are yeah. attacking cabbage people. leaf, heartless yeah. gutter snipe, uh, attacking yeah. people at their core and being like, you are worthless. And I am the only person that gives you worth. I'm like, how did you say that in so many different ways, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I don't necessarily know where I'm going with this, but yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that's so interesting about this movie is that, you know, the the original play is written in 1913 and the movie mm-hmm. itself is set contemporary to when it's made, so late 30s. Um, but it is very much reflective of first that 1913, original 1913 context, maybe some, uh, brief, you know, small updates made for, uh, the late thirties, but it's very much in a, uh, a sort of societal system and very much obviously a gender role, <laughs> uh, expectations of societal gender roles that are very different from our own. And it is fascinating because, I mean, George Bernard Shaw was so ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the things that he's criticizing, the the ways that he's satirizing the upper classes and their sort of uh, prejudices and blindnesses um, are very pointed and very forward thinking. But obviously he is, you know, reporting from the context of that um that society that he's in um with the bath scene um it it is a little bit uncomfortable in a way i mean it's not you know she's not being physically harmed literally she's she's being forced to have a bath you know she's being forced to get clean but it is so uh i i think the the point that's supposed to be made is this sort of they talk about this slum prudery (laughs) this idea that in um which is is very understandable in this sort of class system at the time in order to be 
um, considered respectable if you're this member of the lower classes. You kind of have to go above and beyond and make sure that your character is absolutely spotless, especially for a woman, because, you know, the slightest little slip up and you're going to be out on the streets. You're going to be, you know, forced into sex work when that's probably not what you want. You're going to every door is going to be closed to you. And so you have to be so overly protective of your um, your character, your reputation, the appearance of of propriety, and so it goes so extreme for Eliza that she she doesn't even undress when she's alone, and so to suddenly be forced to sit in a tub of water and um, be scrubbed clean is just this completely foreign experience to her, and she she thinks of it as indecent because it's so outside of the realm of what she's ever been allowed to do before. Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily incorrect what you're saying. I just, in my mind, you know, if this was in the 21st century, you'd be like, okay, let's sit down and talk about why you hate having a (laughs) bath so much that we can get you to a place where this isn't traumatizing you and like pushing your boundaries in a way that's unhealthy so that you're screaming. Like, we want to help you understand why this is good for you as opposed to just throwing you in there and be like, shut up, take it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It's probably traumatizing the way it's done. It's definitely not what she expected when she ended up uh, walked over there that day or took yeah. a taxi over there that day. Oh, I yeah. Say. I'm going to take a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> not bloody likely. I'm going home in a taxi. Yeah. Her love for taxis is. I know, right? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I... It's a sign of, you know, you've made it is you can take a taxi. Yeah, I, I don't remember what it was specifically that you said that made me think of this, but um. You just made me think of, and maybe I'm like jumping too far ahead. Forgive me if you want to go about this in a different way. But you you just made me think about this concept of, I love how we see in the movie towards the end through both of the Doolittles, Eliza and her father, both of them very clearly stating, you've now, you know, basically chained me to this burden of being middle class. And mm-hmm. now I don't have the freedom to do what I once did. I'm not high enough in class that I can do whatever I want, but I'm also not low enough in class that I can do whatever I want. Now I'm kind of in this weird in-between space where people have expectations of me that I can't necessarily meet and I'm not happy with this. And, you know, the world makes it seem like this is a status that I should have, but I have it now. And what do I actually have, you know? And I just thought it was really interesting how... Higgins pushed back so much on that in terms of he genuinely seemed like he didn't understand what they were talking about. Like, how could you not want this? I've made you better. I've helped you. I've whatever. I don't understand what you're talking about. But then for the people that actually are coming from a place that's more in touch with reality, they're like, no, no, you need to understand like the difference between these things. And I just thought that that was I mean, there were so many interesting questions that were raised in this in this film and in this story. But that was one of the ones that I found to be the most profound and the most intriguing. Just this concept of I feel like another movie or another story would have pushed this to a place where it's this concept of, oh, well, now you've achieved these things. So look at how much nicer your life is and how much better your life is. And this film is like, no (laughs) just because you might be slightly better off in terms of how you look or the amount of money that you have doesn't automatically mean that your life is changed for the better and I just thought that that was a very unique approach to that type of uh 
change that people go through in terms of like stories. So I, I, I absolutely loved that. I did not expect that. And then once they, I think it was Eliza's father who brought it up first and then Eliza brought it up after. I don't entirely remember, but yeah, the fact that they brought that up twice, I was like, wow, this is, this is really a great point. And I wonder how that would have been received watching this in the 1930s. You know, I, I don't know but I feel like it probably would have taken on a little bit of a different sort of meaning for them. I'm not sure, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to tell exactly like, you know, in the context of the time, how you would receive it versus how we receive it now. But yeah, I'm so glad that you picked up and and pulled that thread out because I think that's one of the most fascinating things about this movie is that it is, you know, again, with the the class system satire, it is this exploration of what does it actually mean to quote unquote better yourself or you know Higgins Higgins's perspective of is like I've created you mm-hmm. you know you are now a a person because you weren't a person before this mm-hmm. <laughs> but now that you know how to speak you know in this pronunciation that I I speak and you know how to use all the upper class lingo now you have access to all of these things that you didn't have access before which is true in a sense absolutely but there is also like you say that sense of loss and that sense of um, sort of being being cut off from what you had before, but also from full participation in this new class that she's been sort of superficially elevated to. You know, she talks about how toward the end, um, you know very well that I can't go back to the gutter. You know, mm-hmm. she she can't go back to the the life that she had before. She can't go live with her old friends and start selling flowers on the streets the way she uh, she did before because they're going to be like, well, you're too good for us now. But she also doesn't have an actual place in this new society. You know, the only people who, she says, the only friends that, real friends that I have are Higgins and Colonel Pickering. And, you know, what kind of a, a life can she really make with one of them unless she gets married? Which is why marrying Freddie Hill becomes such a such an attractive prospect. And I think that sort of sense of being taken from one elevated, quote unquote, from one life to another is really interesting. Um, one of my favorite novels of all time, which is Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, has a really poignant theme or a scene toward the end where the um, the heroine, Fanny Price, who's this uh, sort of poor cousin who's been brought to live with her relations in this, you know, this be- big, beautiful English estate, Mansfield Park. And so even though she lives there and she's kind of neglected, she is living among all this splendor and this tranquility, you know, people, this sort of genteel manners and everything. And toward the end of the novel, she goes back home and her house is an absolute wreck and everyone's running around and yelling at each other and it's dirty and people are rude to each other. And she, she's just so, it just brings about these feelings of um, such kind of loneliness and being lost because it's like, well, I don't fully belong where I've been, but also I can't go home again. So where do I belong? And I think that's some of what Eliza feels in this story. And I think it's a, it's a very relatable story for a lot of people who you know with the american dream you you theoretically want to end up in a quote-unquote better place than your parents did but there's also that loss then of your um some aspects of your ability to participate in the the home and community and society that you came from um and if there isn't a certain future for you that is that's a scary place to be in yeah i i find 
I find this movie to be, in my opinion, seemingly progressive for its time. It, it's, it feels very feminist to me because it, it shares this idea that women don't necessarily want to get married, <laughs> which I feel like that was probably maybe the case for lots of people back then, but they couldn't voice it that much because it was just kind of the societal expectation that as a woman, you reach a certain age, you you have your what what do they call it like coming out? Part, I don't even I'm forget that. Yeah. Maybe that's from like you're the debuted into society. Yeah, yeah, like you have your coming out party. Yeah, yeah, and it's like okay, your purpose in life is to now get married and breed and uh, care for the children in the home, and you know if that's what women want to do, that's great. But I feel like there were so many women back then that might ne- might not necessarily have wanted to do that, and I find that Eliza really really explaining in a way that maybe men could understand Higgins doesn't understand because he's freaking the worst but I feel like through seeing Eliza's story and her explaining things I feel like maybe people who wouldn't have been able to understand this concept otherwise might have understood that like she her only option now is to get married and because that's just all she's worth you know she's beautiful and that's it. And that's all, she, you know, that's all that she's worth. And I don't know. I just find that to be a very um, progressive messaging for that time. Just really obviously stating that in a way that's not positive. It's like, oh, well, I guess I'll go get married now. And it's even interesting because in my opinion, I love Freddie. I think Freddie is amazing. And I... I I, you know, I feel like in another story, Eliza would have fallen head over heels for him of like, oh my gosh, this guy. And wow, I just want to go off and get married with this man who's bringing me flowers and whoa. And this movie doesn't do that. It's her recognizing like there's this guy who really likes me and maybe I like him. I don't know. But doesn't every woman want to be loved? And maybe that's enough. And this is my only option. So here we go. And I I don't know. It's like, I don't, I, I, yeah, I feel like in another story, a young woman would have just been like, oh my gosh, this man who loves me, take me away. And she was like, oh, this man who loves me, I don't really want this, but I guess I have to do it now, which in my opinion is how it should have ended, not her abandoning that and going back to Higgins. But, um, yeah, yeah. She's so practical about the idea of marriage. So pragmatic about the fact that like Freddie Hill loves me. He's nice. Uh, he's not a particularly like impressive person. <laughs> I don't think he, you know. I'd have I to provide for impressive. I think he's I'd super have to provide funny. for him rather than the other way around. Uh, but you know, he does care for me, and like at the end of the day, I do need um, someone to actually respect me and um, you know consider me in the way that I act. Yeah, one one change actually that I find very interesting and again that I, I do kind of like <laughs> more than my fair lady is the Freddie is I mean, he's adorable, you know. We love that he loves Eliza because Eliza's amazing, but he is kind of an idiot. <laughs> Whereas in My Fair Lady, the Freddie character is this sort of um he's just a straight conventional romantic hero like he has his own song where he sings about how much he loves eliza and that makes it all the more frustrating and when (laughs) she leaves at the end and goes back to him here at least i feel like there is a bit more ambiguity where it's like you could have a a good life with freddie but also he's not on eliza's level at all like it would not be a marriage of equals (laughs) so i can understand why that would be that's an option for her but it's not necessarily her 
first choice, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think Freddy's an idiot. I just think he's I just think he's dorky and weird. And people can be dorky and weird and still be like, you know, mm-hmm. capable of things. I'm sure he has things he could contribute to a marriage and to yeah, well, I mean, society and all those things. I don't think he's lesser than anyone else. I just think he's dorky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going off of a his complete like inability to hail a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really funny. Geneva, like, it was raining. He's so bad at it. Geneva, it was raining. <laughs> uh, I think also in the the postscript that Shaw writes, he write he does write a little bit about how like Freddie is really not a practical person. He's very not really not good at earning money. Uh, he he and Eliza once they marry, they need a lot of help from other people, and I think Eliza ends up being kind of more the breadwinner in that situation. But he does contribute, you know, social status and a name, which is not nothing in this particular society. So, you know, could have worked out. George Bernard Shaw obviously thought it would have worked out. Yeah, I'm a little bit more torn on it because, again, I I think Freddie, as depicted in this particular version of the story, is he's just not Eliza's equal. He's nice. You know, I don't think it's a tragedy if they get married. But... I also kind of see a little bit of Higgins being like, I'm not going to have my masterpiece thrown away on Freddie Hill. And I'm like, first of all, it's not your masterpiece, yep. but also she could do better, you know. But also she can do whatever she wants. <laughs> so also she could do whatever just let her she wants. Do what she freaking wants. <laughs> let her like, live. Let her do it. <laughs> Come on, Ugh, man. Man. Yeah. Higgins yeah. sucks. He, like, seriously, he, he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> He's the worst. Yeah, I do love, I mean, I love the way, again, the way that Leslie Howard plays him, where he's like, you can tell that he, he's just playing up how much of a self-important idiot he is. Like, there's so many moments that Higgins will say or do something, and it's immediately undercut. Like, Mm -hmm. I love that moment. Um, I want to say it's after the ball when they have their quarrel, and he's like, oh, you know, I I can't believe I've wasted all of this, like, important knowledge and all my time and regard on you. And he just starts to walk up the stairs and and he trips trips. up the stairs. (laughs) It's so good. Well, that was something, I was mm -hmm. watching that and I was thinking, so is that supposed to be something where, oh, he's discovering his feelings for Eliza and he's nervous and that's why he trips? Or is it more so just meant as, let's just undercut what he just said and make him look silly? My interpretation is let's just undercut what he just said and make him look silly. Okay. Um, I think if there's a moment where he's discovering feelings for Eliza, and that that is an if, because I think we should talk um, at some point about the what I think is uh, ambiguity of the ending. It would be more at the those very last moments. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, the last conversation. There are some moments which I really like where he does show a little bit of he shows vulnerability and he also shows some kind of admiration for um, Eliza's independence. And I think that's very important to the 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 arc that Higgins goes through, because I do think he changes a little bit toward the end. The question of the ending is, is that change going to become, continue and become permanent? Or is that just a kind of minor speed bump and he's just going to end up in the same place that he was always? Yeah, I, I just pulled up my notes. And speaking of I just have several notes about Higgins and just things that happened. And one of them is, uh, I believe it's the scene when he kind of goes to show off Eliza for the first time. I think that's the scene that it is when he takes her to see his mother and then the other people oh, show up. Oh, I love up. that scene so and much. And Higgins goes, he says to the people, that, to the first two women, delighted. 
enchanted. Then to the man, he hands him his hat and goes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I thought that was great. He's just such a he's such a jerk. And I think earlier on in that scene as well, when he first gets there, his mom goes, this is my at home day. You promise not to come. <laughs> His mom knows that he sucks, which is so great. (laughs) I love their relationship so much because she truly is like you can see in her personality where Higgins gets it from because they're both such strong willed personalities. But also she's like, no, my son sucks and he's completely ridiculous. And I'm just rolling my eyes at every single thing that he does. I can't control him, but I can roast him at every moment that I'm I feel like her and Miss her and Mrs. Pierce are both very good about doing that. They're like, we can't mm-hmm. change your behavior, but we can put you in your place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're gonna call exactly. you out when you need to be called out. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. use that next time someone this was my at home day. You promised not to come. Oh, so good. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that um, was that was actually my Assuming that those are the same like sequence at the house, that was my favorite sequence in the whole movie. That was the one where I was laughing out loud at so many different moments because we have all these different types of of jokes where, you know, Eliza is really just like pronouncing things in these wacky ways that are kind of just out there. And then um, is this the scene when she's maybe it's the next one. I don't know. Is this the scene where she starts like her voice technically is correct, but the stories that she's telling, (laughs) but everyone is reacting in different ways. Freddie is like totally into it. He's laughing. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the high society older lady who's a guest or whatever, she is in shock. She's like, (laughs) she can't process what she's hearing. And then I think it was, I think it was Higgins' mom who, like, loves it. She's leaning forward, like, whoa, Mm -hmm. these stories are so much more fascinating than talking about the weather and our health. And then Higgins is there, like, what's going on? Shut up. This is too much. That whole dynamic of just all of those different reactions. But Eliza is so oblivious. She just Mm -hmm. keeps talking and talking (laughs) and talking. She has no idea she's doing anything wrong. So she's, um, for for context, she's... um, this is her first time in being around society people, um, having learned the proper pronunciation, but not what to pronounce and what not right. to pronounce. So she's taken to this tea party with Mrs. Higgins and she starts telling this story about her aunt was um, apparently murdered <laughs> in order for by the people she lived with in order to get her best hat. And all the society people around her are just absolutely gobsmacked by what she's saying but because she's saying it in this very proper voice they're like oh it must be okay but like oh I'm it's just I I wouldn't have thought that like you know ladling gin down your your throat could be good a good cure for for the flu but um all right I guess (laughs) and she keeps saying was the flu that took her and the the woman's like what is that or that done her in or something like that that it's my feeling as how they done the old woman in yeah she's like what you keep saying that what does that mean (laughs) and then plus uh at the end um you have her you know oh uh, Freddie offers to walk her home and she goes, not bloody likely. I'm going home in a taxi, in which a is kind of scandalous at the time because bloody is a swear word in the UK. And yep. uh, it was, you know, it was a little bit unusual for, for a character in a movie to be saying that. And the the older woman is like, oh, I don't know if I'll ever be able to bring myself to use that word. That <laughs> word. Funny. Yeah, I I wish 
Man, I mean, that sequence was so good. I can't recall any of the specific moments right now, but th- I mean, I was I was laughing out loud. It was so incredibly funny. It, it was it was kind of the double whammy of A, the stories that she's telling and B, the manner in which she's like the, her different inflections and she's talking so slowly. <laughs> you know, she's pronouncing her words so deliberately. And how she starts kind of going by this this laundry list of things that Higgins gave her in terms of, oh, yes, the weather, the rain falls. Well, she's just repeating all of the tongue twister exercises he gave her. Yeah, she's like, the rain in Spain stays mainly in the plane. And everyone's just like, <laughs> And he's like, uh, yep, you're right. <laughs> but the fact that those are the only things that she knows, either these tongue twisters or just telling these crazy stories. I that scene was just so good it was so good it's so good it's so good a little underrated moment at the very beginning of that scene before Eliza even mentioned uh arrives <laughs> that's one of my favorites going back to um Mrs. Higgins and how amazing she is the guests arrive and the camera kind of follows her as she walks up to to greet the guests and she's like and here's my son Henry and then the camera turns just at the perfect moment to catch Henry as he is attempting to sneak out the back door <laughs> oh I don't he doesn't want to meet the guests oh my goodness I caught it this time and i thought it was so funny and he's like oh yeah um i'm here yeah hi <laughs> yes delighted wonderful thank you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that scene is so good and and not just her physical acting how she walks up to everybody with her arm like yes. awkwardly extended yes. in front of her and, <laughs> like she's and in then, a play and then when she leaves goodbye higgins goodbye whoever you are goodbye oh, and then he's like get out he's like goodbye all i'm taking a taxi the, that little moment where you know she's like not quite sure what to do with the tea things and so she's just sort of following higgins's lead the way oh they're all gosh. stirring the, yes. the tea silently and it's just this little tinkle of the spoons yes. hitting the teacups and it's just I so was, it goes on for so long that was one of the moments where i was bursting out laughing because it was like one person starts and then the next person then everyone's kind of just like following suit yeah. and it's just how long is this going to go on for oh my i don't know <laughs> i don't remember who breaks the silence by first saying something it might be a lot I don't know but yeah Yeah. we should talk through I mean I don't think we need to talk through the the plot too carefully point by point but maybe some of the the characters um sure apart from Eliza and Higgins and then we can kind of circle back to them a little bit more toward the end Mm -hmm. um the character of Colonel Pickering do you have any any thoughts on him because he's kind of this important character in getting the plot going but he doesn't do a whole lot through the course of the story yeah, I mean, I I found myself wondering throughout the whole film, why is this guy still here? Like, not why is he still here, but why does he care? I, you know, is there some sort of? Is I I don't know. I think there's. I feel like there's some sort of relationship between Pickering and Higgins that I don't necessarily understand that maybe existed prior to what we're seeing on screen, in terms of. Do they have some sort of rivalry? Do, I, I I just couldn't understand why they made this bet to begin with of, I bet you can't do this in six months and blah, 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 blah. I just, I, I understand that he got the story, you know, rolling, like you said, but I don't necessarily understand why. Like, what, what are his motives for that? And then I kind of didn't really care about him for the rest of the movie. I felt like he would show up and I would be like, oh, there's that guy again. 
But he doesn't really seem to be contributing anything, so I'm not really going to pay attention to him. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe you see more of something there for him. But to me, I was just kind of like, all right, he's in the room, but I'm just going to ignore him. <laughs> so, And for the longest time, I couldn't figure out uh, – well, because I, I, I know this movie is called Pygmalion, and I was like, okay, so is Pygmalion supposed to be Higgins? Is it supposed to be Pickering is there no Pygmalion in this at all like I don't understand I think I think Pickering might have called Higgins pig at some point I I don't know I just couldn't understand where the Pygmalion came into this story maybe it's just purely reference but anyway that went on a tangent by the end but (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah no worries I think it's I don't think there's ever I, I can't recall any explicit reference to Pygmalion in the story I think it's more Shaw operating off of <clears throat> the idea that if you lived in 1913, you might have a little bit of knowledge about Greek mythology and okay. would pick up on what the story is referencing. Um, gotcha. But yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I like Pickering, um, but he isn't super memorable, especially when you have these two really dynamic performances as the two leads, and then he kind of fades into the background a lot. Theoretically, he is a pretty pivotal character, I think. Obviously, he gets the bet rolling. But he is also very instrumental in, um, or at least Eliza credits him with being very instrumental in her development as a person because she points out her kind of journey towards self-respect is actually, even though Higgins is teaching her how to speak, Pickering is the one that teaches her to respect herself because Mm. of the way that he treats her. And he's the one who shows her, you know, she has this line, uh, the difference between a lady and the flower girl isn't in how they behave, it's in how they're treated. Mm -hmm. um pickering treats her as a lady and so she'll always be a lady to him you know and so i think there there is this very important function that he serves in that sense that he is the one who allows her to understand what it feels like for someone to be treating her as a lady and that kind of allows her to realize and start demanding that treatment for herself but you know as a for the most of the action he kind of is just in this supportive role he's sort of there to um, oversee the bet make sure that you know attempt to pull back Higgins when he's going too far though he doesn't do a very good job of it (laughs) be kind of supportive and championing Eliza I do like the fact that when he loses the bet at the ball he's he's he he's like fully pulling for them to carry off the bet the entire time even though he's theoretically the one who's betting against it he when Eliza wows everyone at the ball and Carpati is completely fooled he's like he's so excited for her for both of them um you know he really is kind of the one person um at least at the beginning it, later Mrs. Higgins is very much in Eliza's quarter uh corner but you know he's very much in her corner throughout the the carrying out of the bet but yeah as a as a character he he's kind of pleasant but fades into the background maybe a little bit too enabling of Higgins Hmm. I think there's a little bit of class commentary there too in that Higgins and Pickering apparently meet for the very first time at the beginning of the movie and yet they're just instantly best friends because they're both upper class educated people who are interested in the same niche hobby and it's a weird niche hobby by the way it is it's a really weird niche hobby phonetics the science of speech um yeah, I mean, science of speech is a you know perfectly legitimate area of study, but yeah, it is very I, niche. I mean, I meant more so in terms of let's pull people out of the gutter and teach them oh, how yeah. to talk and <laughs> introduce them into society. If people are if people like phonetics, that's fine. It's just mm-hmm. 
It's like, let's go find somebody and teach them and bet on it. And yeah, I'm like, that's yeah. weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, I mean, I find the, the setup of this movie to be so fascinating because it is so different from America where... I mean, I think it's exaggerated. It's definitely exaggerated a bit, but this idea that the way that you speak, the way that you pronounce your words, your accent in Britain, especially at this time, is so indicative, not just of your social class, but also of the physical location in which you were brought up. So much so that Higgins could plausibly have some sort of vaudeville act where he just <laughs> points out people in the crowd and is like, here's where you come from. And they're like, right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in America and, you know, in Britain, too, I think, to an extent, in our increasingly globalized world, people's accents, regional accents are disappearing. Um, you, Especially in America, you really only hear regional accents in certain pockets or among older generations. But at this time, we it's should, very much a thing. We should ask our listeners if they can. Uh, I, I feel like my Chicago accent is uh, pretty, pretty, pretty prominent. I mean, I mean, it depends on who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to people from Chicago, it's definitely a lot more pronounced. Whereas when I'm talking to you, I mean, I've told you this before. I I tone it down when I'm talking to you, but I'd be curious if the listeners pick up on it. I feel like they probably do, even though this is a toned down version. Yeah. 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 I mean, my mom, you know, her Boston accent is mostly lost, but when she spends time among her siblings, it'll you can hear it mm-hmm. creeping back into the vowels. Whereas I, you know, I was raised near Philly um, during my childhood. I never really had a Philly accent. Maybe there are a couple words that I would pronounce more the Philly way, but there were older people around me that would have really strong Philly accents, but I just never did. Um, yeah. So yeah, it is it is funny how those things can happen or not happen. Um, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on um, on Eliza's father because mm. I was I was watching the movie and so full disclosure I was watching this very late last night I've been traveling a lot I I've just been and not sleeping well because traveling and sleeping in weird places and whatever um, so I was quite tired watching this so maybe that's why but I felt like there was a lot going on with Eliza's dad that I couldn't fully understand. Um, and I think part of that is because the opening, like the first scene that we see him interacting with Higgins, I feel like it's very long and it's kind of the same thing being talked about over and over again for like way longer than it needs to be of give me my daughter, you can have my daughter, but you need to pay me for her. And if you think these scenes are long, man, rewatching My Fair Lady, the songs for Mr. Doolittle go on forever. Yeah. Oh my goodness. But but I mean apologies for everyone who loves My Fair Lady, but I always that movie's too long. I feel like people, I feel like even people who like that movie would be willing to admit that certain sequences are too long because they just they just are. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I just felt like I mean I think that scene with with her father was just too long. They were talking about the same thing over and over again. But I don't know if I'm fully grasping the depths of his character. I don't fully understand really where he's at at the end he said that Higgins told somebody something and that somehow elevated him to middle class and I I don't I don't know can you just like summarize his story for me I guess because the only thing that I was able to capture from him was he's Eliza's dad they're both very low class and like quote from the gutter type of thing he discovers that Higgins has found Eliza. He goes over there and is like, hey, give me five 
pounds or five shillings. I don't remember what it is. Five X amount of currency so that you can have my daughter and I'll be on my way. And don't give me 10 because I just want money so that I can get drunk and move on and continue my life. And then we see him six months later and all of a sudden he's like, yeah, you told somebody something and now I've been raised up and I'm marrying this woman and I don't like that I'm middle class now. So that's kind of everything that I understood for him, from him. But I'm curious if, if there's more there that you see that I just wasn't able to pick up on. Yeah. I mean, you've got the the broad strokes. So Mr. Doolittle is... Um... Yeah, he's he's very lower class. He's an alcoholic. He's he's very proud of it. Like he has this moment where he talks to Higgins about how he's he ad- openly identifies as one of the undeserving poor and he thinks it's unfair because, you know, he's like, "Yeah, I'm undeserving. I intend to go on being undeserving. If you give me money, I'm just going to drink it away." But because I'm the undeserving poor, I can't get any charity, but I have the same needs as the <laughs> deserving poor. I have more needs because I drink all the time. So <laughs> Um, so yeah, basically he, you know, he hears that Eliza is coming to live with these upper class gentlemen and does not need any clothes. And so he's like, hmm, something is clearly going on here, but I I don't want to stop it. I just want my quote unquote rights as a father, aka I expect to be bribed to not make a fuss, um, for all of this. And then you guys can go on and do whatever it is you want to do. Um, but the way that he expresses himself, you know, with that thing about the undeserving poor and, um, just talking about like how, you know, well, Eliza's going to get something out of this. You guys are going to get something out of this. Um, why shouldn't I get something out of this? Just the way he expresses himself kind of charms Higgins. He really likes his sort of weird twisted logic. And so what happens off screen is that Higgins writes to a friend of his in America and says, oh, by the way, one of the most original moralists that I've ever heard is this guy named Alfred Doolittle who lives in London uh, and is a dustman. And he's just a really interesting, has this sort of really interesting philosophical perspective on life. So what he doesn't realize is that that friend in America who's all like, you know, America pays for him to give lectures or something. Well, the friend in America is set, is basically like, I want to show that Americans are different from the British and we respect merit no matter where it comes from, no matter what class. And so that friend dies and he leaves uh, Doolittle 3,000 pounds a year in his will and basically makes Doolittle rich, ha- Doolittle having done absolutely nothing. <laughs> and he says the only condition to receive this money is that you give regular lectures at the local reform league. Um, so do yeah, Doolittle is basically just completely thrust into this new middle-class lifestyle because of some offhanded comment that Higgins made. And, um, you know, he's not going to turn it down, but he's also not crazy about it. And so he is, you know, at the beginning of the movie, when he first arrives, he mentions that he has a missus. Um, what we find out later on is that this was his girlfriend that he was living with. They weren't married. And now that they're in the, have been elevated to the middle class, they have to go and get married. And he's like, tying the noose around my neck, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't seem very thrilled about He doesn't about seem very thrilled married. about it at all. No. <laughs> No, not at all. But yeah, so it's like Higgins, you know, inadvertently changes the lives of both Doolittles, um, putting a lot more effort into one than the other. Um, But it is interesting to kind of compare and contrast. What do you think were Higgins' intentions, though, with telling that American? Was was him purely just telling something to a friend of like, yeah, I met this guy who's got some interesting perspectives on the world and that's it? Or do you think... Because if that's the case... I think that's it. I don't think he had any 
I mean, he barely even remembers that happening. I don't think he had any larger intention of that friend taking that information and doing something with it. He's really shocked when he finds out what happens to Doolittle. Then who is this psychotic American? (laughs) I mean, classic American, I guess, just being like, oh, well, let's prove that we're good because we'll just, you know, I'll leave them in my will to show how selfless I am and how I'm, I don't know. That seems really, really weird for someone to just mention something offhand about a guy who said something one time and you're like you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna write them in my will and give them (laughs) three thousand pounds a year for the rest of their life I mean you know if you're a rich person you don't have any um you know relatives that you like that you want to leave your money to like people do weird things with their money all the time people leave their money to their cat you know I I, I, get this guy I guess was just maybe you know maybe it's not all his money but he was like, well, I want to do something that seems productive with my money. And this guy seems like maybe he could do something productive with it based on how this one comment. Find, how did he find him, though? Like, I Who just, knows? I don't know. Anyway. That, was, that yeah. was for the lawyers to figure out. Right. Yeah. And it all happened very quickly. But whatever. Anyway. Yeah. I, I just thought it was interesting because his or not his, but Eliza's father kind of came in in these two different sequences and. I just wanted to make sure I understood everything that was going on because both of those scenes were quite long and I was like, do they need to be this long and I'm just missing a lot of the other information or did I get most of the information? This is just going on for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, some of the conversations that happen in this movie are very much two people kind of going back and forth about the same thing. Yes. Kind of at different angles, which I mean is, you know, maybe dramatically can be a little bit frustrating to untangle especially on your first viewing but can also be true to life you know people do when they have conversations often go back and forth over the same thing over and over again yeah Higgins and Eliza do that a lot at the end a lot (laughs) well again too just just leave how many times does he need to shout an increasingly more demeaning insult at you for you to just walk out the door ah Yeah. Well, again, too, with this movie being a satire, I'm sure that the addition of a random American that no one's ever heard of um, elevating one of the characters, there's there's definitely satire going on there about how like American reformists who really think that they're, you know, who want to do something great, maybe look down at the old fashioned British society and want to change it, but don't really understand what their influence, what influence they're having. Yeah, for sure. I could see that. Uh, let me see. Yeah, we should probably talk about the the ball at least a little bit. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, Eliza, um, her training is finally complete. She looks gorgeous, by the way. I'm just... Okay. Can Wendy I, can, Hiller. Oh, my goodness. Can I just say, mm-hmm. I don't know what this says about me, but first of all, I, I find Wendy Hiller to be incredibly attractive, period. She's so beautiful. But yeah. also... I find her to be a lot more attractive when she's dressed with her hat and everything in the beginning versus when she puts all these dresses on. Uh I'm like, girl, you just look like everybody else now. (laughs) Like, like, because her face is so beautiful that I'm like, you don't need all of this other stuff. Like, I I mean, that's just my own like personal opinion and that's fine. Um, I'm also not someone who's like, oh, 1930s women's fashion is like my thing. The casual yeah. fashion I'm here for. The the fancy stuff I don't like as much. But yeah, I don't know. I, I was I saw her dress like that and I was like, no, go back to your other clothes though. <laughs> you look so much better. I mean she's beautiful regardless, but Yeah. 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 I love that, you know, I again I, not to keep bringing this back to my fair lady because 
it's it's really not fair. But I did really like the costumes in My Fair Lady. I do think My Fair Lady has great amazing. costumes. Yes. No, I, I 100% agree. It's just for me, I, I find Wendy Hiller very convincing in both forms in her mm-hmm. cockney form where you can you can see her because she's not conventionally beautiful is the thing she's so beautiful but she has this very unusual bone structure yeah she's just she she has a very unusual look and i i think she's very convincing in her um sort of lower class cockney form and then also when she dresses up i just think she looks so regal and ethereal when she shows up for the party i love that line where um one of the 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 old uh, duchess or whoever it is at the party. She's like, she looks as if she has this far away look in her eyes as if she's always lived in a garden. In a garden. And Higgins <laughs> is like, well, she kind of has. Yep. Because, um, of course, she's from Covent Garden. Um, not the garden she was thinking of, but still a garden. Um, anyway, um, I don't know where I was going with that, just that she looks gorgeous. And I, I also really love her dress. I think it's so beautiful. She, she just looked uncomfortable to me. I don't know. Mm. Like, I feel like... In the movie, which, okay, I'd actually love to hear your opinion on this because mm. when I was watching this, obviously we see Eliza kind of progress in her ability to be convincing as a higher class citizen, right? Like we see her improve as time goes on. For me, I feel like I never saw her fully reach a point where it came naturally to her, where she was just mm. naturally embodying it, which I personally loved. I thought that that said a lot about um, about Wendy Hiller's performance in terms of she was able to kind of show Eliza as a character, get more comfortable with this, but still mm-hmm. kind of not fully be there yeah. because she comes from this place. And I feel I like mean, the even- contrast between her at that, um, the, the tea that we just discussed where she is kind of on her best behavior, but clearly is not fully all the way there. And she is so stilted and awkward while trying to pretend that she knows what she's doing versus her then at the ball where she's a little bit knows more, but it, it is also still quite, you know, performative and then her finally at the end where it is a little bit more not like there's a very clear progression throughout the film and that's all a credit to her performance she changes she does so many changes to her voice and her accent but also just her physical body language and the way that she holds herself in a way that's completely believable and appropriate to where Eliza is in her journey yeah so I I really like that in terms of the character of Eliza and in terms of Wendy Hiller's performance. But I also found it to be a little bit odd when she's at the ball that everyone seemed to so highly revere her when to me it still seemed like there was a little bit something off. And I was like, why is everyone, not why does everyone see this woman as beautiful? Because like obviously she's she's stunning, but just why is everyone so enthralled and impressed by this woman who from my perspective still doesn't fully look like she belongs there and maybe that is why we have um what's his face that other dude who was under Professor Higgins Carpati. Yeah, yeah who's basically like well the reason she is kind of weird is because she's not actually English and m- maybe that's the perspective that they're taking of like oh she doesn't fully fit in because she's just not from here she's from mm-hmm. somewhere else and that's the intrigue um but yeah, I just found that to be interesting how everyone was so taken by her pretty much immediately when to me, I was like, she still looks a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, um, I think that's what the takeaway is, is that if you have the right clothes and your accent sounds correct, if there's any sort of reserve or um, 
seeming discomfort or any sense that you are holding yourself apart from the others, you're going to be given this benefit of the doubt and assume it's because, oh, you're too good for us rather than that you Mm. are a lower class person who's trying to fit in. It's we're going to interpret that as, oh, you're actually some sort of princess or someone who is like just so far above and is kind of condescending to come down here with us mere mortals and uh, interact with us for a little bit. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it read fine for me. Cause I think that is, it makes sense for where Eliza is, but it also makes sense to me for how they interpret it as she is this girl who's, oh, it seems like she's just kind of been hidden away in some castle somewhere all her life, you know? And so therefore we're going to, you know, look at her and, and treat her as this, you know, this, this member of the royalty, whereas the real explanation is she's a girl from the streets of London who doesn't want to say too much in order to not give herself away. And so she's going to be very restrained and reserved. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Wendy Hiller's performance, though. Oh, my Man. goodness. She is so brilliant very, very in this impressed. movie. Yeah, I need to watch some more stuff that she's done. She she had a movie a year or two later called Major Barbara, which I think is also a George Bernard Shaw adaptation. Um, David Lean was also involved in that one. That's been on my list for a while. I need to go go and see it. Yeah, I was very very impressed with her in this in this role. The fact that she's able to juggle comedy with drama with I don't know almost kind of with everything in between like she can be angry she can be sad she can be heartbroken she can be confused she can you know yeah I I don't know I just found her performance to be incredible yeah her like early in the movie where she is interacting with the sort of her quote-unquote her betters you know the people who are higher in society than she is and she has there's this sort of childlikeness to her in certain senses where she's kind of Someone will say something that seems threatening to her and she kind of reacts instinctively, but then she can also be kind of um, self-important is the wrong wrong term, but like, you know, asserting herself in certain ways. Um, you can tell that she's intelligent. She's just very, you know, removed from the things that they're talking about. And so they'll say things and she doesn't get it. And it's not because she's dumb. It's just because she moves in completely different circles than they do. Um, and she does such a great job at conveying all of those and then making it believable as she her sort of, you know, circle of knowledge, her understanding expands to what the heck these toffs are talking about and being able to interact with them. Um, yeah, it's it's so good. She's, oh, she's amazing. She's absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah, I found her performance to be the best in this movie by far. By far. <laughs> so um, after the ball, um, Henry and Pickering... I mean, Pickering is normally a pretty empathetic, understanding person, but, you know, he's he's not doing his job here. He's not pulling no. his weight. <laughs> he's completely oblivious to how Eliza is feeling. And of course, Higgins is always oblivious to how Eliza is feeling. Uh, Higgins and Eliza end up getting into a really um, big argument afterwards because she's like, what exactly am I supposed to do now? You don't care about me. I did put all this work into this bet and you're not even acknowledging it. And he's like, what? You... It was that winning that bet was all me. Um, typical Higgins. So she leaves. Um, 
And then Higgins and Pickering are running all over town trying to find her. Finally end up back at Mrs. Higgins' house where Eliza has gone for refuge. I love the fact, I mean, I may have mentioned this briefly already, but I love the fact that, again, with Mrs. Higgins, like, understanding that her son sucks, she's so instantly on Eliza's side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every time that she interacts with Eliza, she's like, she oh, what's my son done to you now? I would have thrown the fire at you or <laughs> yeah. something like that. Yeah. She's like, yeah, come to me. I will I will take you in until you figure out what's going on. I'll help you get on your feet. Like, you know, I'll be the go between between me and my you and your my son. Like whatever you need. Uh she's great. She's very supportive. Um, so then um there's the whole run in with Doolittle. There's that great scene where Eliza and Higgins are like kind of having it out with Pickering and Mrs. Higgins in the room and um Eliza talks about how like you know uh, I've you know I've permanently changed I could never utter those old sounds again and then Mr. Doolittle walks into the room and she's instantly like ow yep (laughs) which is great um but anyway so the ending comes so Mr. Doolittle goes off to the wedding um seems like most of the characters end up at the wedding Eliza Mrs. Higgins Pickering um Henry uncertain where he goes but he arrives (laughs) home (laughs) Eliza is now home and they have this really long argument that I have to be honest, I have rewatched on YouTube so many times. Mm. I have portions of this thing almost completely memorized just because I've seen it so many times. I just the chemistry between the two of them in terms of like their dynamic as Mm -hmm. actors, as they are sort of giving and responding to each other, I just find so fun to watch and so Mm -hmm. exciting and so dynamic. Um the way kind of one of them has the upper hand and then the other one has the upper hand and they're moving around the room like this is all this is like a 10 minute sequence of just two people having an argument but I I find the direction very impressive here I think the the camera work does a great job of keeping it looking very visually interesting as they're they're walking around and sometimes it's on one person sometimes it's on another it's creating different levels um yeah it's just it's just very well done. Um, and basically the whole argument is, is Eliza going to come back and stay with Higgins or is she not? And they really do talk around, um, which goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the difference in vision between what George Bernard Shaw intended and how a lot of people since have read the scene. They really do talk around the idea of what it is that Eliza would be coming back to, what the relationship between the two of them would be. Um, some interpretations of the dynamic between the two of them, um, even so, I've seen a lot of this in the the letterbox reviews for this movie. There are a lot of interpretations that Higgins is gay, um, or at least asexual, and that there is actually no romantic interest between the two of them because because of that. And so, therefore, they're talking about the possibility of them living together in some sort of situation would be just more about sort of a companionable relationship, um, which I do find really interesting because I can see bits of that in the performance as well. I think that's a valid interpretation, if not necessarily one that, um, I mean, I don't know what the intentions were, but I could see that as being a valid interpretation. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, as far as Higgins being gay? <laughs> or asexual, just the um, the idea that there could be discussion of them being together but in a non-sexual non-romantic sense yeah I mean I 
like I said before, when I was watching this, I was not anticipating any sort of future in which the two of them would <laughs> still be involved in each other's lives. So my initial reaction was not, oh, these two will live together in the future, even if there is nothing romantic, because I was like, no, get out and never <laughs> for yourself. <laughs> um, but but that being said, I mean, I def- I definitely feel like, well, I mean... I don't know if I would say Higgins is, I mean, obviously we don't, we don't know any of these things. He just seems to be so, like, so self-indulgent that he doesn't really care about Mm -hmm. anyone else. Yeah. He keeps emphasizing the fact that he's a quote unquote confirmed bachelor, which has often been used as kind of a code word um, in that era for someone who is gay and can't be open about it. Um, It also could be just... I mean, he is really rude to everyone and doesn't seem capable of a healthy, uh, intimate relationship. And so, you know. That was more so how I interpreted it. I was like, dude, you need to not be with anybody. And it's for the best that, (laughs) like, you've got some problems and, like, you need to just work on yourself and stay over there. Don't, Don't harm anyone else. So, I don't know. I really, like I said, I... I did not expect any sort of romantic interpretation of this or any sort of future between these two people. And so it wasn't until after I finished the movie that I saw that other people were thinking about these things. So for me, I was just watching the movie. And by the end, I was like, oh, this is really just a battle for Eliza's independence and individuality I wasn't thinking about it in terms of oh what's their relationship to each other and are they gonna continue on and is Higgins really you know does he really want to be with anybody or does he not like there was no sense of any sort of romantic or partnership period that was going through my mind I was focused on Eliza and is she going to be able to break free or is she going to stay here and if so what does that mean um so yeah I don't know which again, is like why this movie makes me mad because I feel like my entire interpretation of the story by the end, everyone just had a different takeaway that I was like, oh, okay, well, that sucks because I've definitely I don't had like that experience. any of those other, <laughs> any of those other outcomes. Not that other people's, not that other people's like takeaways are, are invalid. It's just, I'm like, I don't like any of those. All of those suck. Like, I've definitely had that experience before where I finish a movie and I'm like, wow, that was an amazing ending because of these specific this specific interpretation that I have of it. And then I find out that many people, if not everyone, had a different interpretation. Yeah. And I was probably just wrong. I'm like, dang it. No, I like mine better. Yeah. So I just feel like a lot of the questions that people are asking weren't relevant questions to me. My questions were more so, okay, you know, Eliza clearly is in this space where she ended up finding value in herself because of what Higgins gave her. But then after finding that value started recognizing like, okay, if I stay in this place, I'll lose everything that I've gained. Where are the places that I can go where I can actually build upon this? Where are the places that I can't go? Is Higgins pushing me forward? Is he holding me back? You know, those are the things I was really, really struck with, struck by and left with finishing this movie in terms of just, just her as an independent woman and is she going to make decisions for herself to make her life for better going forward and take this springboard that Higgins gave gave to her whether in the best ways or worst ways whatever but regardless it happened to her 
So how can she take advantage of that and better herself going forward? Because she is very smart. She's a very smart woman. She's very mm-hmm. independent. She's very um, self-aware. And I think that she knows what's best for her. And so I was just rooting for her like, yeah, girl, you know what's best for you. I understand you need to have this final, like you got to have it out with Higgins because he's treated you terribly this whole time. Like, let him have it. Let him have it. Let him have it. And I felt like this whole argument, like you said, it's a it's a long scene, right? And so this whole time, I just felt like she was mustering up the courage to finally let him have it. And you were saying, you know, that's that shot that we have of her kind of towering oh, over him so and good. walking. So I was like, yes, we've made it. Like Eliza is fully realized. She is her own independent person. She's seeing Higgins for who he really is. She's putting him in his place. She's getting back at him. Like, let's do this. Yes, queen. Like you said your piece, get out, like go live your life. And I was like, woo, yes, love it. And then I really liked how at the end it kind of showed how she had moved on and made her made her decisions and her life would be better for it. And then Higgins was kind of stuck in this past of, oh, the ghost of Eliza is at my door. Like she's moved on, but I haven't because they have that discussion where I think uh, Higgins says something along the lines of like, you've thought about what your life would look like without me. But have you thought about what my life would look like without you? Yeah, and so, you thought about whether I can do without you. Yeah. And she's and like, felt, you'll have to. And he's like, I could do without anybody. Yeah. And so I feel like that last sequence or that last moment was really him getting to a place of recognizing like she has moved past me and here I am left behind here with just all of my little tapes that are going to make me feel better about myself because it's me putting myself back into this place of having power when I actually feel empty on the inside and I suck and I need to like figure out my life. And I just felt like that was such a better ending for these characters. It brought them to a complete arc in terms of Eliza started in this place. She evolved. And by the end, she realized what she wanted and moved on with her life. And then Higgins starts in this place where he thinks he knows what he wants. And he's a dirtbag to everybody. And then by the end, he recognizes, oh, I actually suck. And I don't have anything. And people hate me. And I'm alone because of how I've treated people. And I found that ending to be way more interesting. (laughs) I'm like, that's what I want this movie to be. Like, that is a five-star, perfect, 100% Tatum loves this. Like, check it. Let's move on type of story. And if I'm being perfectly honest, that's the ending that I want to talk about. But that's not the ending that this movie has. Uh, And it makes me sad. (laughs) But do you see where I'm coming from? Like, do you see that perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... I'm like, is it just me? I don't know. No. (laughs) No, I I completely understand your perspective. I think I am more... I'm a little bit softer on the Higgins character than you are, like, Mm. uh, fully acknowledging that he sucks. I just see more potential for growth toward the end. And so the ambiguity of that ending where... So my interpretation of it, at least this time around, is these are the two characters kind of coming back together and saying, all right, there is something between the two of us that is equal and there is the potential there for something, not saying whether it's a romantic or whether it's something more in terms of, you know, professional partnership or something like that. But if that is ever going to happen, we need to start fresh and we need to, you know, really think about how we're going to establish things moving forward. And so him saying, where the devil are my slippers, is kind of a test of 
let's rewind back to that argument that we had after the ball where he's looking for his slippers and they get into that argument. And let me see how she's going to respond now that she has fully come onto her own as a person. And so I think in the ideal world, her response would be, uh, I saw them in the living room, go get them yourself or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the two of them would be able to move forward with this new position of equality between the two of them. Um, whether that is realistic for it to happen, I don't know. Um, and again, like I said, <laughs> my interpretation of the ending changes a lot Yeah, over the years. Something I find really interesting about their argument and I think this kind of plays into the complexities of Higgins's character because he is so, he is so, you know, delusional in certain senses. He's very oblivious to the feelings of others. Um, he is, um, you know, he's he's very self-important. But he does really respond to Eliza, every indication that Eliza has that she's becoming an independent person. Up until the point in which she's like, all right, I'm an independent person, therefore I'm going to go. Like, that upsets him. But every time she's like, you know what? Stop correcting my grammar. I'm going to make a grammar mistake if I want to make a grammar mistake. He seems to like that. And he talks about how um, her coming back, he's like, well, his his whole philosophy is, you know, whereas Cur- Colonel Pickering treats a flower girl as if she were a duchess, I treat a duchess as if, as if she were a flower girl. So he's like, I treat everyone equally. I'm rude to every, I'm an equal opportunity, rude person, um, which is not great. But he, he has this sort of belief about himself that he is, um, he is capable of having a sort of equality in the way that he un, um, interacts with the world. Yeah, the, like he talks about Eliza, the reason for Eliza to come back would be for the fun of it and that they would be on these sort of terms where, you know, if he doesn't like what's going on, he'll leave. If she doesn't like what's going on, she'll leave. Like they're both mutually free to enter into enter into or leave this agreement between them. Um, so yeah, I just, I find that layer very interesting because in some ways it contradicts other things we know about Higgins. But I think there is a sort of sincerity about it in a way um, that is very different from probably the relationship that she would have with Freddie Hill, certainly, or a lot of other men at that time. So, yeah, that's that's one of the things that I do find intriguing about um, his character, even though acknowledging, again, he is a rude, (laughs) very rude, bullying person who sucks. But I do see there being some level of potential for something moving forward between the two of them if he can continue on the growth that she does seem to inspire in him. Again, that's that's why I kind of do like the ending is it's just, for me, it just leaves open that question. Is this something that they want to pursue? And if they tried to pursue it, would it work or would it be a disaster? We just don't know. We're kind of poised in this inflection point in these two characters' lives um, where the next lines that they speak will be extremely important, but we don't get to see what they are. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with a lot of what you're saying in terms of, I mean, I think that, I think that Higgins kind of starts to show potential for growth towards the end, but it's really late on because even mm-hmm. in the beginnings of their arguments, she keeps saying over and over and over again, now that this is done, what becomes of me? And he legitimately does not understand what she's talking about. He's like, he's what like, do you just mean? go work in a flower shop? Like, yeah, he's why he's are you worried like, about this? It's, yeah, he's be like, fine. what what do you mean? Like, why is this a question? She's like, no, you don't listen. Listen to what I'm saying. Like, 
now that this is over, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? And he's like, oh, well, do this if you want. I don't care. Do this. I don't know. And, you know, so in my opinion, yes, he does start to show potential for growth. But A, it's really late on. It just is. And B, I don't care because I'm like, even if you have potential for growth, Eliza should not be coming back to you. Like, period. You you could be evolving. You could be whatever. That's great. Love that journey for you. Keep on keeping on. I hope you get better and stop treating people the way that you treat them. But the fact of the matter is, like, you've said the things that you've said to Eliza. You've treated her the way that you have. And I feel like it, it seems counterintuitive to the growth that she makes for her to come back to him. It just doesn't make sense to me. I feel like it's 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 what's the word I'm looking for it's um it's it's like reductive it's like she makes this progress yeah she she makes this progress and then it it's like nope never mind she's coming back backtracking yeah and it just it doesn't and I understand that you know the way that you explain it and apparently how other people interpret it it is open to interpretation you know it might be a romantic relationship it might not it might be a partnership it might be a we hang out for another week and it turns out you still suck and I'm going to leave and walk out the door. Like whatever. It's open to interpretation and I get that and that's fine. But the fact that it's left open to interpretation, I don't like she, I think she shouldn't have come back. And the fact that she did makes me question the, the, the independence that it seemed that the movie had established prior to that point. So it, it just, I'm like, why, why do this? Why movie? No. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I I see what you're saying in terms of Higgins, but I I I watch this movie a lot more through the through the lens of Eliza rather than through the lens of Higgins, and I care a lot more about her story than his story. And um, because of that, I'm a lot more invested in where she ends up, and I don't like where she ends up. I really loved where she ended up until the last three right, seconds. Until the last, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, well, screw this. Like, ah, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I I understand all that. All that makes sense. I will continue on in this world with my own personal interpretation of Do this it, movie. Yeah. Because no reason not to. I I think that this is one of my favorite movies I've ever seen with that interpretation. And I'm going to hold on to that. I'm not saying it's the right interpretation, but it's my Mm -hmm. interpretation. (laughs) Sometimes you just got to pretend that a movie cuts off like two minutes before the ending. Have you ever heard that joke about people who go and see, uh, who like put on Titanic and then end, <laughs> turn it off an hour before it ends. And they're like, well, I'm sure yes. assuming that the ship got into port and everything was fine. Yeah, it's, a, it's what a lovely movie about two young people falling in love on a boat at sea. That kind of is how that's not how I would experience. I, I kind of experienced the movie Titanic in reverse uh, prior to mm-hmm. seeing it for the first time, which wasn't until like college because they would randomly show it on TV all the time, all the time. And my parents were, <laughs> My parents would turn on, they turn on like maybe the first half hour or so, but then we weren't allowed to watch the middle cart because that's where all the like, you know, all the sex happened. The car. Like, we were kids and everything. But then they would just turn on the last hour. And so I've seen the sinking scene like many <laughs> times. Because <laughs> uh-huh. that's fine to, for, to show kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the best part of the movie anyway. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fun fact, by the way, um, Interesting thing about My Fair Lady is that movie is an adaptation of Pygmalion the movie rather than Pygmalion the play. So it changed it 
retains, you know, the the scene changes and additions and things that were made for the 1938 movie, including the ending. Um, and in the in the movie with Audrey Hepburn, Rex Harrison, you know, it's a pretty conventional interpretation of that ending where she comes back and says the thing and he goes, where are my slippers? And he kind of slinks down in his chair and she gets this look on her face. where She's like, oh, you, you know, and it's kind of, oh, happy ending. Um not happy to me because I don't I hate Rex Harrison in the movie, but um, but interestingly, when uh, My Fair Lady was recently revived on Broadway, now I didn't actually see this, but I read some interesting reviews about how that ending was restaged and recontextualized. So the same lines are used, but the way it's staged, it is um, Eliza coming back for the last time and saying farewell to Higgins. Like she she leaves and then she comes back and that scene between the two of them is very much the two of them kind of understanding this is the last time they're going to see each other. And the way that he uses that where are my slippers line is a kind of um, not exactly sure how they they use it, but it's very much with the two actors creating this understanding that this is them saying goodbye to each other forever. Um, So there are ways to kind of even with the dialogue set, you know, to restage the way that you understanding this understand the relationship between the two of them and where it's going to go from there mm-hmm. all right so pig malian uh 1938 so in terms of awards so this was 38 there's not a whole lot that i was able to dig up um in terms of um legacy i didn't actually pull any <laughs> wasn't able to pull any reviews at the time but this movie did win um, the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. It was also nominated for three more. So Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Actress. Um, obviously, a big part of the legacy is the My Fair Lady musical. Um, but I wish that would change. I wish more people would actually see this movie because <laughs> it's <laughs> so good um, and so fun. And and way better. <laughs> and way better. Just all around. Yeah. Much more layered, more thoughtful less draggy um yeah so yeah this film has really stuck with me in the years since i've first watched it i've rewatched it many times um i just the moment if you know if i had to pick one moment that has really stuck with me it's always going to come back to that angle that we talked about where eliza is telling off higgins and it goes it's just looking up at her and she's like talking about how all she had to do is lift a finger to be as good as you are and she just looks 10 feet tall and it's so triumphant and amazing and I love it so much and Wendy Hiller is brilliant and um yeah that's just the moment that I always keep coming back to in this movie so what about you anything that you think we will you'll will stick with you um beyond this viewing I think that same moment honestly even though I think the impact of that is severely undercut given by the fact that she comes back to Higgins at the end very frustrating to me um but yeah that that shot was just I really really loved how they were able to portray her from that kind of perspective um so yeah that shot and then also the sequence with you know you were saying how you've rewatched the the final argument a million times I'm definitely going to be rewatching the the rain in Spain <laughs> yes like, do it <laughs> like I will be rewatching that over like I laughed out loud so many times I just think that is so funny um so yeah I'll, i will remember all the cuts to the vicar's well. shocked face where he's just like what is happening it's so i mean everything about that is 
that entire scene is just so great. The the physical comedy, the actual comedy through what she's saying and the way it's edited and the way we see the different people and how they're receiving what she's talking about and the way that it starts with, you know, Higgins trying to escape the room and it, the way that it ends with, you know, Eliza just saying, I'm going to grab a taxi. It's just, it's a really, really great sequence of comedy and, uh, and I love it. And actually something that I thought about while watching this is, um, Another movie that I love is um, the Philadelphia Story, and oh, yeah, I so good. I love movies from back in this time where you're able to just tell such great stories, and it's literally just a bunch of people sitting in a room talking, but you're able to to just tell such incredible stories throughout. Um, yeah, it's like there's no special effects. There's no fancy, you know, over-the-top drama with crazy things. It's like, no, this is just people talking. And people talking is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, anyway, yeah, th- yeah. this is, the this screwball is a good movie. The <laughs> of, I mean, this movie is not a screwball comedy, but it, it there are parts of it that kind of fit into that mold a little bit. And it's just such a such a fantastic era of filmmaking that sort of, you know, fast paced comedy that's also very satirical and the actors are all just bantering off of one another and everything is just so fast and so so dynamic and so exciting. And yeah, I love it so much. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. All right. Well, do you want to tell the people what film we're going to be covering next week? Yes. Uh, We are switching tones quite a bit. We are switching gears in a major way. Yeah. We Next week, we will be watching one of my honestly favorite films of the 21st century. It is called Under the Skin from 2013. It is an early A24 film. It is a psychological horror film uh, that is visually stunning and... uh, emotionally uh disturbing and just uh, lots of different lots of different themes going on uh geneva has not seen it i've wanted her to see it for a long time she's also wanted to see it for a long time so i'm glad that we will finally get the opportunity to talk about it so yeah under the skin is what we'll be discussing next week yeah all right very very excited about this um i'm a big fan of scarlett johansson and i've heard from many people that this is one of her best performances indeed all right so that's going to be it for today thanks so much for listening bye everybody okay this is my niece she's standing next to me she's gonna say bye everybody say bye everybody bye everybody (laughs) that's my five-year-old niece she says bye we'll talk to you next week (laughs) (laughs) until then Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.